This is an ABC podcast. Hello, Natasha Mitchell here. Welcome to a musical edition of Big Ideas. Now, look, I grew up with a deep love of punk bands and that love is still very much there. So I know I have something to learn from today's show because it's all about what happens when the tradition of classical music meets pop culture. Are we talking a clash or a beautiful harmonic coalition or perhaps both? And here's an interesting development. Younger music lovers are increasingly hooking into classical music. One estimate has it that the streaming of classical music has increased by 17% since the pandemic. And a third of its audience is now under 35. You might be one of them. What are you seeking? ABC TV's Lee Sales who you might know is a talented pianist herself with a penchant for musical theatre, is joined today by four musicians to talk about the role of classical music today. Broadcaster and podcaster Sasha Kelly, writer, director and performer Emma Muir-Smith. Dr Priya Srinivasan is a performer, choreographer and writer whose work is rooted in South Asian classical dance. And Jessica Wells is a composer, orchestrator and arranger for concerts, films, theatre and album recordings. So what I wanted to start by asking you all about is how musicians and classical music is represented in pop culture. Because at the moment, this has been a subject of some discussion because of the film Tar that's out at the moment starring Kate Blanchett. And there's also the doco that's come out about Simone Young. There's just been a production of Amadeus at the Sydney Opera House. And classical music's often been a kind of rich source of pickings for artists in other disciplines. Like I can think of An Equal Music by Vikram Seth or the television show Mozart in the Jungle. So let me ask all of you, what do you think about the way um, that the world of, of classical music and performance is portrayed in popular culture. Let me start with you, Sasha. I was thinking about Mozart in the Jungle because I loved that series. Obviously, there's things about it that aren't necessarily reflective of what it's like or what it's like to be at a conservatorium. But I remember thinking, watching it, the musical director on that show was so good because the oboe excerpts were accurate of what she was actually practicing was what my friend, who was an oboe major, was practicing. And it was the first time that I'd, I mean, there'd be other people who would have been ahead of the game for me, but um, Caroline Shaw was the first time I'd encountered her music. And she's gone on, I mean, she already had an incredible career at that point, but I thought, oh, there's someone behind the scenes here who's actually making this really interesting for, for music nerds as well. But it was interesting while you were saying that, I suddenly thought I grew up with the generation of American Pie and um, 40-year-old virgin. <laughs> and so it's like all I got in high school was this one time at band camp. <laughs> and then I also majored on the euphonium and this is something that only affects me, but the opening montage of 40-year-old virgin, he's playing a euphonium. So it was like, I just can't get a break. Like, it's not cool. <laughs> um, so I think it's really interesting because we've just like fighting for representation that I think is kind of accurate of how great it is, but there's nothing wrong with that. People know what the instruments are, I guess. I, I had actually an interview with, um, what was the girl's name who played that girl in American Pie? Alison something her name was. Yeah. She was. There was an interview with her where she said, to this day, constantly, yeah. people go up to her and go this one time band camp. <laughs> it's yeah. one of those movie lines that sort of really yeah. cut through. Um, Emma, what about you? Oh. I feel like there's not a lot of representation of classical music in pop culture. The one thing that just keeps coming to me is that episode of The Simpsons where Homer is singing Puccini. Um, and I don't remember the, the exact details, but I, I feel like it's often um, kind of presented as a very other thing that's not mainstream and that's kind of spoken about as a little gimmick or a you know very specific cultural moment. and. Yeah, it's interesting when we see things like Tar come out that have that as a full, like a whole film devoted to classical music. Have, have any of you seen that? So you two, what did you think of it? I loved it, but um, we actually went together oh, and okay. we had a fight about it. <laughs> oh, really? <laughs> oh, okay. All right, well, you tell me what you liked about it first. And... Um, oh, I just thought I had to leave the fact that it was about classical music at the door to an extent, although I know that they used a real orchestra. It was great to see musician, not actors, play 
musical instruments, but rather musicians just play it and that be in the backdrop. But um, I thought it was an exceptional character study of power and um, gave me a lot to think about. And so, but what did you think then, Emma? Look, I, I was very divided, <laughs> like within myself by Tar. There were aspects that I really loved and others that I was more critical of, but um, I think some of the filmmaking aspects I was perhaps a bit more critical of rather than the classical music stuff. But I, I felt in general that they tried to maybe fit in a little bit too much, but at the same time, some of it was quite general as opposed to specific. And that, I don't know, I think because of that, it sort of didn't quite give an accurate representation of a lot of the nuance of the classical music world. But at the same time, I think the, the power aspect of it was very well represented and I think actually scarily accurate from my experience. <laughs> <laughs> so Priya, what, let me ask you first, what do you think about the way that classical music performing arts is represented in popular culture? I come from a country that is also quite old, India, which has its own traditions and has its own strange history because of colonialism, the ways in which the popular and the classical have actually merged together. I'm sure everyone in this audience has seen something of a Bollywood film. And the music inside the Bollywood film actually has its history in classical Indian music. And what I want to point out to many of you who might not know is that what is hidden in our forms is the a presence of a woman, a set of women who were singers and dancers. We didn't have divisions between music and dance and theatre, and so all of it was together, and it was by these women who were um, a particular class and caste of women who became invisible in the histories of music and dance. And when there was a law enacted to prevent them from performing on stages, many of them actually went into films. And so the music, classical music as we know it, is inside all of popular culture within the Indian context. So they are always there, but this absent present. That's really fascinating. So what do you think are the lessons from that that can be drawn, say, for the Western tradition of classical music? Well, I think the first thing is that the hierarchies were cut. There is not this sort of level of class that's implicated of what is classical and what is not. So I think that whole, sort of what I call the vertical hierarchy of what sits on top and what sits on the bottom is reversed when you actually put it in a horizontal plane. So if everything is actually sitting side by side and the classical is equal to the popular, is equal to the folk, the ethnic, all kinds of non-Western forms, what then happens and how do we reimagine ourselves as a truly intercultural nation of which the population, as we all know, is quite diverse now. And the stages and the music scene doesn't always represent that here in Australia. So because of that um, merging of those two traditions, the classical and the popular, does that mean in, in India, are you more likely to have people who are into all of it? Because say in Australia, you'll have people that maybe, you know, they might go to film, but they would never go to see a classical music concert. And then you might have people that would go to classical music, but they would never want to go to a rock concert. Well, as I said, the history is hidden and therefore there are still the classical people who will only go to the classical material. But we have a billion people in the country, so therefore there's so many possibilities for who's going to go to everything. Yeah. And so film, and as we know it now, in Australia too, we're seeing so much of Indian film which always have music and dance element. So there's no distinction between a musical and an Indian film. It's all embedded inside. So we have wide viewership, wide appreciation. And in fact, in the latest Grammys, you would have seen who won that song. It was from a Indian film, which has its roots in the folk and the classical, which people don't necessarily know. The Natu Natu song, for example. So Jess, what about you? Do you have any favorites that you watch that you think, oh yeah, I feel like that's very representative of you know, what I do. Oh, well, interestingly, I just worked on the biggest grossing Indian film called Brahmastra. Oh, my God, I love that film. <laughs> <laughs> so there's, there's little old me in Australia wow. orchestrating the film score for the Indian composers who are, you know, we were communicating with via Zoom and everything else, and we recorded the underscore in Vienna via Zoom. So I was staying up all night telling the Viennese musicians how to play all this music written by Indian composers and orchestrated by an Australian. So it's a truly um, you know, global commitment of, of you know, people working on these giant movies. But that particular film was really opened up my eyes because we have the Bollywood sequences with the dancing and all the um, traditional instruments which are being recorded in India. 
then I'm writing these sort of Marvel movie style action sequences, you know, for gods and goddesses fighting each other, which are very contemporary Hans Zimmer style, you know, scores as well. And then we have romantic songs as well. And they literally said, we are so sorry, Jess, we're, we've got a session coming up. We haven't sent you anything more to score because we're working on the song because we have to release the song because that's what sells the film. And we have to record it in five languages. And then it goes on YouTube and I open up YouTube and it's got day one, 1.1 million views. By the end of the week, wow. it's 57 million views. And I'm like, wow, that's just beyond that's anything incredible. I've ever done. But that whole cultural thing was quite amazing. But classical music of Indian classical music and then Western traditional kind of mashed up together in this one thing and millions would have seen this film. My um, pet bugbear at the moment is watching Wednesday with my kids oh, and yes. um, General Ortega and so many people have said playing to me, is, is General Ortega really playing the cello? I'm like, God, she had two months of lessons. Why, how on earth do you think that she's able to play the cello like that after two months? I've had to fix so many bad performances. I've had to rewrite Beethoven. <laughs> <laughs> because the pianist and the cellist are playing in a TV show and their fingers are doing something that is not in the Beethoven. Oh, no. So I'm, I'm telling this wonderful cellist who's recording with me with the screen, I said, I'm sorry, you have to do a trill uh. there in that bar. And he said, but that's, I practiced this. And like, I said, I know, but the edit of the film has the fingers, we have to match what the fingers are doing. So we've added stuff to Beethoven. So I have to do this as part of my job. I read Simone Young, Sasha, saying somewhere, I think you were making this point too, Emma, about she keeps being asked if Kate Blanchett's conducting is realistic and she's like, do people ask surgeons when actors play surgeons if it looks realistic the way they're cutting up bodies? I rewrote Puccini as well. <laughs> For Happy Feet, yeah. when we have a penguin singing oh. Puccini. Oh, man. And of course, we had to write the orchestra score to fit the penguin. So we all, we had 5-8 and 7-8 and Puccini. So <laughs> you just do what you've got to do to. Do you ever wonder that these composers are going to start haunting you? Yeah. <laughs> when I was in my 20s, I used to be the arts reporter for the ABC. And one of the issues that was always talked about was attracting new audiences to classical music. Um, it's a perennial issue. It's still talked about all the time. Why do you think it, it's always a challenge and it's always an issue that comes up, Jess? Uh, I think it's, there's so much out there. To, I mean, I've got a 16-year-old and a 14-year-old, so YouTube is where they're at. But the thing is, I see my kids going, oh, mum, listen to this piece, you know, and they'll bring up YouTube or TikTok, and it's a classical music-style piece in a game that they love or a TikTok that's gone around and I'll say, oh, that's Carmen or that's this. And they're like, they don't know what these, these pieces are. So through film and television and games, our younger generation are figuring out what, class, what classical music pieces they, they like. They just like the sound of it and don't know what it is and want to find out more. Yeah. So that's a way to get them in. Yeah. And orchestras and you know, ensembles need to kind of open up to the younger generation, otherwise they're going to lose audiences, obviously. So to think of interesting, cool ways of, of presenting concerts to the younger generation is, is definitely what I can see happening a lot. How do you think we make the classical arts appeal more prior to, to new audiences? Well, I'm on one track, which is the intercultural practice. And I really think that when we say classical, we've really got to think about what classical means from different perspectives and different places. And how do we put those together? We find so many interconnections. And that's what we've actually been doing now for three years with um, the MSO, the Sangam Ensemble, and the platform that we've created uh, opens up audiences to what this intercultural practice is. And I think what we did a few weeks ago at the Sydney Maya Music Bowl, if the response is anything to go by, that's actually one of the ways forward for how do we look at new forms of music that have existed over a long period of time, but how are we refinding the threads, refinding the connections in the present, and also making it accessible to so many people? Another thing we do is we also look at how music is dance and music is storytelling, and we bring those elements from our practices to work with the MSO, and it's been beautiful and rewarding to actually see how those balances can occur and how we're actually able to move and make people feel emotionally moved 
by what it is that we're doing. Emma? This is something I've spent a lot of time thinking about, particularly during COVID, I think, um, gave us a lot of time to think. Going back to when I was writing my honours thesis in fourth year at uni, I was writing an essay on Benjamin Britten, who's a um, 20th century British composer, and he was writing in the 1940s, and I remember reading one of his letters and he was saying, oh, you know, we've got no audiences, our audiences are dwindling, no one wants to come to the opera anymore, our audiences are all so old, have you been to the opera? Everyone's got grey hair and they're all going to die and then we'll have nobody. And so I, I think this is a perennial issue, I don't think it's something that is new, but I think the questions and the conversations around how do we get more people engaged is something that is ever changing, particularly in the current kind of digital, digital world and digital landscape. I think that it's about kind of making the link between the film music and the game music and the intercultural music and other cultures and bringing that all together and like how do we make a link for people to classical music? Because I think, like you were saying, people don't know where it's coming from. They hear Carmen, they go, I like that, but they don't know that it's Carmen. So how do we make that link for people that says, actually, what you're enjoying is classical music and maybe you'd like this kind of thing. And I think ultimately, for me, in my journey as someone who's studied music extensively, it's the more you know, the more you can enjoy it. And I think it kind of, for me, comes back to education and exposure with an element of kind of empowering people to know what's going on and then make those decisions. Take, for example, the MSO does a lot of really interesting stuff with films, for example. I don't know, Harry Potter accompanied by the MSO, which is awesome. And you're getting like new, new audiences in through doing that. People who love Harry Potter are coming to that. But I wonder how many of those people are converting over to be people that come to other classical music concerts and how do we bridge that gap for them? I mean, a couple of points. I know some of my friends who are classical musicians don't like doing the gigs that are the film music gigs. I guess there's a, a question here as well about, it's not necessarily about audiences, it's also about performances. And Because I mean, I know we program thinking about what audiences want, but also it's what performers are kind of willing to play, Sasha. <laughs> yeah, it's an interesting one because um, I think my reference point for this is working in radio that specialises in classical music and you hear this conversation happening with my friends who are in arts admin and the orchestras or the opera or even when I was doing those roles. But Classic FM's, um, our breakfast audience was 2.5 million and our station listeners was 5 million. And even 3MBS, which is the local fine music community radio station here, when I was there, their weekly listeners are more people than fit in the MCG. So when you actually think about when you're putting people who are enjoying music into that kind of scale, are they dying or is it back to this question of like, what environments are we welcoming people in mm. to enjoy the music? And, and I would say the same with like, when you're looking at technology and like uh, Kelly Harlock, who I worked with on that classical podcast, she's head of classical music for Spotify and Peaceful Piano Playlist is one of their biggest podcast playlists. So I do think it goes back to that point that Jess, well, everyone's made is, dare I say it, are we kind of inviting a museum culture in some of the more traditional aspects of how we're enjoying, enjoying music? And do we need to look at ourselves and say, um, how are we inviting new audiences? Because people are out there listening. I wonder, Jess, I mean, I've never seen it, but maybe people do program this. So the, do the major orchestras ever program, like, say, Harry Potter on the same bill as Brahms Symphony Number no. 3? Because it seems to me like it's pretty kind of ghettoised, where it's like, we're having our Disney night, oh, and now yeah. we're doing our series. Oh, if you open the brochure, you know, of the orchestra, they're not going to put the Harry Potter in the brochure. No. The brochure is the master series, yeah. visiting international artists, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. So, no, <laughs> it's definitely an, a, an a separate little thing of its own to attract those audiences. And I think it would be nicer to have, you know, a bit more inclusion. And being a composer, you know, we, we need to have stories of our time. And so inviting composers to write about what's happening around them, you know, today is also really important. I wrote a piece uh, which Emma performed in where I had seven prime ministers on stage who were all pushing and shoving each other <laughs> off the stage, which was for Victorian opera linked to the seven deadly sins. Each city in Australia was a sin 
and uh, yeah, Canberra was pride, <laughs> fighting each other. And so those kinds of things, that drew an audience of 2,000 in Hammer Hall. And I've, I've never felt as a composer better when 2,000 people belly laughed and they had to stop the orchestra because <laughs> Julia Gillard had pushed Kevin Rudd off the podium. So, you know, those are the things that people also should be seeing, is they should be seeing things written now and it was in the time of Beethoven. It was in the time of Mozart. They wanted new. They wanted to see what was happening now. So we can't forget to invite people to enjoy their voices, voices from our generation. I meant to ask you before, Emma, when you were talking about reading the Benjamin Britten letter about, oh, it's all old, he's going to die off. You hear that all the time as well. In the research for that, did you come up with any reason about, like, do people hit a certain age and then they suddenly are interested in going to see classical music? Why does that continue to be a kind of perennial thing where you've constantly got this older audience? Because it must mean that younger people at a certain point are then coming. Yeah, that's a really interesting question. I don't know. I just assumed there was a biological gene. <laughs> I don't know, 65, and all of a sudden you've got the time to listen to Marla. Maybe. You know? I was going to ask you, Sasha, I mean, so we've got these older people that come to classical music concerts, and then so many children learn a musical instrument. And I mean, I have many friends who actually learn instruments to like, you know, grade seven, Amos kind of level, and then they just don't play at all now. What do you think it is that sort of young people will often have an instrument as part of their education and then in early adulthood it just drops off? I think, well, we used to actually look in it, into it from an audience marketing perspective when I was at Classic FM, and it was actually to do with like the pace of your life. And they used to say that we expect uh, people to start being coming back to the station at around 45. And, and not to insinuate that anyone at 45's pace of life is suddenly like <laughs> chilled as, but um, they said it's that desire to kind of find a space of calm and find a space of uh, somewhere to um, relax and feel and get away from the news and get away from swearing on the news or swearing on the new songs that are coming out. There's some interesting studies of apparently your musical taste almost freezes in time in your early 20s. So what you listen to up until that period of time is then what you use as a benchmark to grade music against for the rest of your life. So I do think there has to be something to be said of like all my friends who I studied um, music within high school still know all the band songs or the arrangements, parts of the Caribbean that we did in high school band and still love them. And then they love their Harry Styles and that kind of music. And then there's a period where you just kind of enjoy that music forevermore and judge everything else <laughs> against it. That's kind of disturbing because my bank's full of banana rounds. <laughs> Priya, collaboration is, you know, by its nature kind of inclusive. Where do you think are the opportunities for more collaboration between art forms? Well, I think, first of all, when we look historically, we already see that there's been so many intercultural engagements right from the 17th, 16th centuries. We see it. Um, even one of the projects we did with the MSO in 2021 was looking at a composition of Johann Strauss I, which is called the Indianer Galop. And um, when we were speaking to Ben, uh, I said, you know, do you know why it's called the Indianer Galop? And he said no. And so I had been doing research on this topic. And so I was, we were talking about how there were actual Indian musicians and dancers that had traveled to Paris in 1838 and then traveled all around Europe, influencing hundreds and thousands of artists from theater to music and dance. And then finally arriving in Vienna in 1839. And Johann Strauss and Josef Lenner were both in the audience. And there's um, archival evidence of this. And then we start seeing both their compositions change. So about 80 to 90 compositions following this encounter have the elements of the music and dance inside Johann Strauss's work. And so what, what are the specific influences that you can kind of hear coming through from that? Particularly the rhythms. So we have something we do with our footwork as dancers. Can I demonstrate? Yeah, go for it. So we have this footwork that we do, which is basically like foot stamping. And we also have these interlocking rhythms that... So dancers become musicians in the process of doing this performances. And this is what seems to have caught 
Johann Strauss and Josef Lenner's attention, the interlocking rhythmical patterns, and also the raga scales, which is the musical scales that they, the musicians were singing. And so we start seeing, in a way, we deconstructed the Indian Argallop to look at what raga family could actually be inside the song. And the musicians that I work with, Uttra Vijay and Hari Sivanesan, who are part of the Sangam team and artistic directors, were able to unlock the family of ragas in which it could have emerged. And then we spoke to our collaborators in India, who are from the marginal communities that I mentioned, who are actually descendants of these performers who went to Europe in 1838. And they identified for us and said, it's this raga. So then we came back to Ben and we came back to the orchestra and we said, this is how we can try it. We can actually go from the raga, which was Anand the Bhairavi, one of our scales, and we wove it into Johann Strauss's Indian Ergallop. So we did that whole journey and that story to show what is possible if we unpack the past. And that's just one piece and that's just one composer. We have things that have gone both directions. Because of colonization, we had so many British bands and orchestras and European bands coming to the courts of the kings where many of these dancers were present. And therefore, we saw exchanges happening. The violin gets introduced into our form, for example, and the violin is a staple part of the classical Indian music repertoire now and has morphed and evolved in its own way. So there's so many things that are possible just looking at the past, not even looking at the intercultural stuff that is right in front of us here. So we look at both the present, what we can create in this moment, and also the past, and how do we find those moments of connection that bring us together. Jess, I wanted to ask you about the present and maybe the future. You spoke before about your kids looking at stuff on YouTube. Mm. What about platforms like, say, TikTok, where they favour uber short form, um, very hooky, straight off the top. Like, where do you think are the opportunities there for music? I've heard things about artists being told that they won't be signed by a record company until they have a TikTok viral hit. Oh. So, yeah, that's a little worrisome because, uh, you know, basing uh, their popularity in, in the fact that they need to go viral first mm. before they can then have a career mm. is, is a little bit, yeah, a bit worrisome for me. Mm. Um, they are very short grabs, so I guess they have to be kind of catchy. It's interesting that there are a lot of formulas out there for writing popular music, like for example, you take a beat and then you add what's called the top line, and the top liners are the ones that make most of the money. And so there's this sort of formulaic thing happening in there. But I think the diversity that you find is more coming from games. I think, you know, my kids are, well, my, one of my kids is a very avid gamer and into anime. Right. And that has much more cultural interest because there's a game that she plays called Genshin Impact. And in Genshin Impact, there are different worlds. And each of those worlds represents different cultures. And they actually mix a lot of the cultures together. And my kid sends me a YouTube video of a video of everyone playing all these wonderful instruments in the sort of Arabic area of, of this um, game world. And so she's learning about this by watching someone's made this video to show this is how we made the music for, and she loves listening to those scores. So then they get picked up by all the anime TikTokers because they're dressing up as the characters in the game and doing their little videos to that music and it just perpetuates. Right. So there's some incredible creative stuff going on by composers that is infiltrating out there. That's long form because they're five minute things. Yeah. But the, the TikTok may only pick up a little bit of it, but it leads you down the path into where is this coming from? Oh, look, there's this five minute piece of this. Oh, there's an album. And they're listening to a full playlist then. Yeah, and it's, I mean, the question is, like, often people talk about using things as a gateway into other things, which is kind of how I think, you know, artistic pursuits and literature and stuff works. But also, does it matter, I suppose, if you just hook into, say, you love heavy metal and you, that doesn't push you into classical music, even though I actually find those two kinds of music have quite a bit in common? Does it really matter if it's not a gateway into something? If you just enjoy that, if you enjoy game music? Yeah, absolutely. I think everyone's sort of into what they're into. And there's also, they're, you know, they're going to find people who are into the same thing yeah. and find what they're in common. 
and, and they'll talk about what they like and they'll pass it on. I mean, that's the digital age, isn't it? Sasha, what do you think about the kind of newer platforms and where the opportunities are? I mean, maybe I'm being a bit Pollyanna, but I think there's amazing opportunities. I was at uni at the same time as the two set guys who lots of people know, and they've gone on to be um, huge YouTube sensations. Um, and I think as well, when you're talking about TikTok and, and being served things that it's like, well, if you like this, then maybe you like this, it, that journey happens. And I think the other thing about like so much of our listening becoming an individual exercise because Spotify and all, well, all my podcasts are on my phone. And I know from a broadcasting background, you're always taught to make people feel like it's an intimate experience, but music's kind of moving that way too now. It's like your daily drive on Spotify and I'm being specific there, but like it's around what you're listening to. And so there's no judgment. You're not probably getting bullied for playing the euphonium in high school because you've got your playlist and you can discover music on your own terms and without other people knowing. So I think there are issues with like digital disruption and obviously when you're talking about people getting paid properly and there's lots of things that go wrong but there's also amazing opportunities I think if we're persistent and exploring what roads we can go down. Emma, any thoughts on that? Um, just on that sort of TikTok thing and it being an individual experience, that's something that I find like potentially problematic with that whole, you know, with the TikTok thing. I know that if I were to be on TikTok, which I have not allowed myself to be, I would never go to a live event ever. I would be on <laughs> my phone just constantly watching TikToks. And, you know, music and creating music and experiencing music, part of the beauty of that is it being a communal experience and it not being an individual one. Yeah, and I think that's a good point. Because I, I do mean it in the sense of exploration. It's just made me think, yeah, just kind of sparking yeah. off that made mm. me think about how you know, there's something so special in the live and the actual connection to a, an audience. We're like, we're all in the same room, breathing the same air, which is maybe not a good thing <laughs> at the moment. But do you know what I mean? Like there's something really important about the collective experience that you don't get through digital media. Mm. Well, I guess it also, if you attend something live, I mean, you can choose to get up and walk out, but um, it's, there's a barrier to that, right? Because it's socially awkward. And so you're kind of compelled to sit there, which forces you to slow down. And also maybe you don't really like something for the first five minutes, but then it kind of, your ear gets in or then you do like it or this comes up to a bit that you enjoy. Whereas on a shorter um, form platform, you can just go, Whoosh. yeah, I guess that's also um, part of the challenge. And that's why I wonder, Jess, if what it will end up favouring is, say, pop songs that have a really the opening, you know, five seconds will have to be super hooky. Like I was thinking when you were talking about the Peter Gabriel song, Big Time, which I think mm. is a great song, but it's kind of slow to get going because it's got all this kind of, mm. you know, soundscape off the top and then the actual main riff hits maybe, I don't know, 30 seconds in. Mm -hmm. If I was looking at that on TikTok and I'd never heard it before, I would suspect I would have swiped up. Yeah, you have it. to listen a certain way in and our attention spans are getting shorter and shorter. Hence the wiggles always put the chorus first. Oh, right. <laughs> But I was going to say, though, not necessarily, because sometimes people look at the number of views and mm. therefore mm. if you see that a song or dance sequence has had a huge number of hits, you're going to give it time and you're actually going to go all the way. At least I do. I go, well, there's got to be something as to why people are... <laughs> I do that what I mean. <laughs> so I think there's also the idea of the, the numbers mm. game mm. does help this particular issue. But I was wondering if I could address something you said a bit earlier about the gaming world and the intercultural experience that's happening in the gaming world. I just wanted to say, I mean, I don't know if people have thought about this, but there's a danger in the re-inscription of the primitivization, the exotification, the orientalism that is possible in the game world without any kinds of implications, mm -hmm. because nobody really knows what you're doing. I mean, I'm just wondering True. about the ethics of yeah. that whole process, which we've spent the second half of the 20th century really problematizing appropriation and I exotification. Think our, our teenagers are actually pretty wily. They, uh, my child came to me and said, 
hey, mum, this is really bad thing about this game in that, you know, there's, there's all white, white people in it or whatever, or they're trying to portray this world in this particular way and that's not okay because... The, 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 the. So they're pretty good. They're actually picking up and I think that they're actually... The game, game people have to listen a little bit more to this. And, um, and when I saw that video she sent me, I was like, oh, okay, there's those and this, but it's not really Arabic. It's sort of a mixture of a whole lot of different things. So they're just trying to create some sort of exotic thing, but it's not, they're not particularly trying to pinpoint one area. So it is, it is a little bit problematic, but then I guess the only thing that you could do is use synthesizers to create new sounds, I suppose, and, and create a new world that way. So there's a limit to, I mean, they, everyone wants the next world, you know, pretty quick. The release of that next world is going to get all the subscribers to log in. So they have to do something quickly. And I think that's why they just come up with something. Oh, we'll just appropriate this and go with that. And that'll be the next thing. So yeah, there's definitely that. But they are quite smart, I think. They, are, they do think about it. They're quite, you know, strong about their views. <laughs> they say what they think. I wanted to ask each of you, what do you think are the life lessons that you've found useful broadly because of your direct involvement in the arts? So I'll give you an example. So for me, because I've always um, played and, and studied musical instruments, I have a very acute understanding that if you practice something that you will get better at it, that it just, it's like night follows day. And that's a useful thing to know when you crap at anything in life, that if you keep going, you will be getting better at it. Um, Jess, let me start with you. Oh, the definitely 10,000 hours thing is, you know, definitely part of it. I think it's that you just learn something every day that you, I can never know everything. I'll never know about all the ragas. Like there's so much out there in music, I'll never know all of it. So I'm always learning something new and to be accepting the fact that I'm, I'm never gonna be the know-it-all. <laughs> Priya, what about you? What do you think of the lessons you've learned from the arts that you can use in your broader life? Improvisation. Oh yeah, of course. Very fact yeah. that you could be doing something and the very next second something can change. The ground can just literally split open. So what are you gonna do? <laughs> So literally that, because that is our lives. Lee Sales there with Sasha Kelly, Emma Muir-Smith, Priya Srinivasan and Jessica Wells talking classical music and big thanks to the wonderful Melbourne Symphony Orchestra for this recording. Today we also, of course, have music being created by artificial intelligence. Yes, the robots are in the orchestra. But can AI's compositions really move you in the same way as sitting back and listening to a song composed by your favourite writer, your favourite songwriter does. This talk from our Big Ideas archive explores the quality of music generation by robots. Artificial intelligence expert Professor Tony Walsh is speaking with musicians Justin Shave and Charlton Hill. It's really appropriate that here in Sydney we explore this idea because this is where computer music started 70-odd um, years ago. We built here in Sydney, CIRAC. This was the fourth computer, by most people's estimates, the fourth computer that was built in the world. The others uh, up to that point had been in the United States and the United Kingdom. And a team led by Trevor Piercy built uh, for CIRO the fourth computer in the world. And it's very appropriate that this year uh, we're talking about it because we're celebrating the centenary of Trevor Pierce's birth and there are various celebrations you can see throughout this year uh, to celebrate his contribution, his visionary contribution to computing here in Australia. And shortly after that, that computer was commissioned, it was an amazing device, it filled a whole room, it took the energy of a whole street of houses. It was actually the very first, it was used to play the very, 1951, it was used to play the very first public performance of computer music. Now I should point out that it wasn't designed like computers are today to play music, but it did have a speaker. And when the program ended, the speaker would make a little blurt. And the engineers had the ingenuity to sequence those blurts together so it could play some music. Now, they didn't realize how important computers would be to play music back then. So no one had the foresight to record that first public performance of computer music. But a couple of years ago, they did decide to recreate that using the original speaker. Uh, the, the computer, CIRAC, is still, you can go and see it down in Melbourne in the computer museum there. So they used the uh, original speaker and, and recorded the very first computer music, which I'm going to play for you. 
fortunately, computing music has got a little more sophisticated and better than since then, I think. Uncanny Valley are going to show us a few examples. Hi guys, I'm Justin Shave. All my life I've been obsessed with getting music inside my head uh, out into the reality so people can hear it and I can hear it. And so I've got my hands on any tools I can to achieve that aim. First becoming a keyboard player, a musician, then uh, started producing music after that. And then started looking beyond the use of computers just in the production of music, but in the creation of music itself. I've got a little uh, example of a synth that I invented here, which is sort of my first experience in trying to um, get a computer to play music and perform it in real time. It's called the Occam, <laughs> Occam 01. It's a little bit bonkers. So this is your first foray into sort of using computer, or diving down into computers and actually creating something yourself uh, that was, um, uh, I guess, a, a tool to perform with and, um, and uh, to collaborate with. It was. But what I wanted to play was a, an artist called uh, Aphex Twins. This is probably the uh, forefront, I would say, of um, creating music with computers that we're hearing today. This is just interesting, just to show you how far it's come since the uh, Colonel Bogey from Cyrac. Cyrac recording. Yeah. <laughs> quite heavily involved AI um, image generation going on as well with that. So um, what we're very interested in is the next stage on from, from what we're talking about. So we're, we've been collaborating and using uh, computers in this way, but then we look at some of this sort of predictions and uh, producing a song indistinguishable from one by a, a specific artist is of great interest. And, and how can we ever get to that place? And how can we actually uh, know that we've passed that test? We'll talk about that in a minute. Uh, and then, you know, generating a top 40 pop song. Um, this study suggested it was in, by about 2027 that this might occur. However, we're seeing signs that this is probably happening almost as we speak. And, uh, you know, the new sort of um, uh, new genre of music <coughs> is evolving with the use of computers in this, uh, in this collaborative way. Uh, we're not the only ones. Uh, Abbey Road, who you'd all know, um, have a, um, an incubator called Red that they're looking into the fact that maybe the next artist will be an AI collaboration of some description. They're putting a lot of money into that idea. So who knows what's next? So Toby, I guess we need some tools to do this. It's one thing to just say it and play some music, but um, what tools are we going to use or how, how will this uh, come about? Yes, when you tell people that computers might one day create music, the most common objection you hear is, well, computers just do what you tell them to do. How could they ever create anything? And we go back to, to Ada Lovelace, again, 100 years before we had computers, who actually uh, said this same objection herself. Although she had the vision that computers were going to do more than manipulate numbers, that they could play notes and music, she did also point out, well, how are they ever going to create anything new? They only follow the instructions we tell them to. Well, that's changing, and that's why you hear so much about artificial intelligence in the news these days, because computers do way more than we actually program them to. And many people noticed that it became uh, in the news a couple of years ago when we started to get computers to play Go. And uh, Lee Sedol, one of the best Go players on the planet, was beaten by a computer program. And there was a, in the third game, there was a, a famous move, the 47th move, where the computer made a move that humans would never, ever make. It plays by learning to play against itself, and it plays moves. If you have to think about it, how could we program a computer to play Go better than any human? We couldn't have actually explicitly programmed those instructions ourselves, because if we did, we could just follow these instructions ourselves and play better Go. It played better Go by learning, by seeing lots of examples of games of Go, from which it learned, like we learned, like most of our intelligence was learned, how to play Go better. So maybe we can get computers to learn how to play, make music. Well, yeah, Toby, in the same way that the Go learned the underlying rules and the theory beneath, uh, beneath music, it's possible to teach to computers in the same way by playing them those things. Um, we, we run it through a piece of software called NeuralNet, which is basically computer code that mimics the human brain. 
And if you feed it the, the building blocks of music, like melody and lyrics, um, they might begin to understand well, the underlying patterns underneath uh, the theory of music, the rudiments of music, I think you like to call that. So in that sense, if you teach them that, they might be able to you know, start to compose it for themselves. We had a bit of fun in December doing exactly that. We fed NeuralNet a lot of Christmas songs. Um, uh, there's, what, 80 to 100 that we could sort of get our hands on, Justin, but um, what, what happened? It was the lyrics, uh, the MIDI files, which some of you may know, of course, is sort of just the, uh, the, the binary version of, uh, of music information, and it generated a, uh, a Christmas song. The result was that Santa Claus is coming to Little Lord Moses, which is very controversial, but um, we didn't do it, the computer did it. Don't blame us. Mm. All right, here we go. Santa Claus is coming to little God Moses. Hark, the heralds are begging peace. Santa's on his way. We shouldn't bow, really. If the no, computer no, should no. bow. And Justin, you were going to take us on a bit of a deeper ride into Deep Mind, which is um, perhaps a little bit more academic in its pursuits of this same sort of idea? Yeah, what was something a little less bonkers was a project being worked on by Google, Deep Mind section of Google. It's a bit of a different approach. They got the computers to actually listen to waveforms of music, not the actual underlying information about the music, and then create new music and new sound files from just listening to the music. They played at all the uh, piano tracks from the masters and came up with something you know, pretty convincing I think. There we go. <clears throat> it starts off quite well. Towards the end, it starts to lose its way just a little, little bit. And that's because it hasn't quite worked out the long-term structure of music and how humans perceive and understand and, and uh, the way that a melody moves over uh, several bars. Um, it hasn't quite sort of picked that thing up. I thought yet, it was pretty good. It sells it, you know, it playing does. at the recital hall even, even better. So I guess the trouble with this is that um, we, we're looking at this music and generating some of this music. But Toby, we've got to ask, how, how will we know if we've succeeded in creating music that um, perhaps humans will find viable or you know, uh, enjoyable? That's a good question. And fortunately, we have an answer. Alan Turing, the father of the computer in many respects, uh, uh, amazing mind. There was a BBC poll where he was named person of the century uh, for the last century. Not only did he invent the computer, he, he wrote the first scientific paper about artificial intelligence, and he proposed this idea, that, which is now called the Turing test, of how will we know when we actually have built a machine, a computer that could think by running a, a test. If we couldn't tell the computer apart from a human, then maybe we could say it was, artificial, it was artificially intelligent. So maybe we could apply the same sort of test to computer music. Yeah, we thought that'd be a great idea, so I took some code from a site called uh, MuseNet and tweaked it a little bit. Um, MuseNet was running on a neural, another neural net which had listened to all the works of Bach. And we fed a little bit into it and then generated a piece of Bach, basically. And then I went to the real Bach website and downloaded one of his fugues at random. Is that realbark.com? Uh, real, yeah, realbark.com. Have you been there? <laughs> So hopefully it's uh, obscure enough that uh, people don't recognise this fugue, but we're going to play them to you side by side. We are. We've got a bit of uh, crowd involvement today. Mm. This is Bach versus Digibark. And we're going to play you two pieces of music, and we're going to then ask for a show of hands to decide what you think is the, the real Bach piece. So as I play them to you, you're list listening for what you feel is the, the genuine Bach. So this is Bach 1.
Sounds pretty good to me. And so now we have Bach 2, remembering we're listening for the real Bach. moment of truth. Bark 1 versus Bark 2. Can we show, have a show of hands who thinks Bark 1 was the real Bark? Pretty convincing. What do we think about 80 to 90 percent of the audience think yeah. that Bark 1 was the real Bark? And anyone wants to go it alone and see Bark 2? Okay, so a lot, a lot less think Bark 2 was the real Bark. So, Justin, the real Bark is... Reveal the answer. Reveal. Bark two. Bark the real bark. The AI fooled you all. <laughs> well, 80% of you. Yeah. Um, the thing about bark one was it was very exact. It followed all the rules. Um, and it learned very well from all the works of bark um, to mimic and uh, compose something in the style of the bark. The bark two, however, has a little bit of, uh, you know, he breaks the rules just a little tiny bit here and there. Something which makes it a little bit, well, something computers can't do, basically. And point. the point being, I guess, is that um, playing music is very complex. And Toby, I guess you know a lot about how AI can do certain things, but potentially not everything yet. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's, that is a good question. What might stop us from actually really building a true uh, computer bark uh, that matches the brilliance that we all know of the man himself. And there are a couple of things that come to mind. One is emotions. Computers obviously don't have any emotions. But we know that from a, from a, a physical uh, reason, because emotions have a biochemical basis, and computers are electrical devices. They don't have any biochemical basis. But you know, maybe we can program them with fake emotions, uh, and maybe that's good enough. The other thing, of course, that computers don't have, that humans have, that go into the making of music and the appreciation of music is our consciousness, that we're, we're able to step back and reflect on things. And machines, today at least, have no consciousness. And it's not clear if we will ever build machines that have consciousness or whether that's just an artefact of biology. Music by robots. If you want to find out whether musicians are as excited about this as AI experts, there's a link to this debate on the Big Ideas website. And for even more Big Ideas, you can also follow us on the ABC Listen app. And get in touch with us if you're planning interesting events that you think we should know about. Our email, bigideas underscore rn at abc.net.au. I'm Natasha Mitchell. Great to have your company. I'm heading off to listen to some music. Maybe it might be classical. Bye. been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.